This is a podcast from the Pathologies of Solitude project at Queen Mary University of London. It's one of a series looking at places and experiences of solitude and how these have changed over the centuries. Each podcast has been curated by a member of the project research team and draws on contributions from a wide network of collaborators. This is episode three, Perilous Places. It was recorded right at the height of the COVID-19 lockdown of 2020. My name's Hetta Howes and I am in my bedroom in a makeshift studio with many pillows and soft furnishings, recording part of a podcast for the Queen Mary Pathologies of Solitude project. And I've got with me, well, remotely anyway, one of the postdocs on the project, James Morland, who's been thinking about this podcast episode on perilous places. When we were first chatting about this episode, there were all kinds of ideas floating around about what kind of places we would visit. But of course, everything's changed now, hasn't it, James? Yes, very much so. (laughs) (laughs) When we were initially talking about this podcast, it was a very difficult, complex history to try and get our heads around. And little did we think that we'd end up in a world that was its own real perilous place. And I feel like we're now all kind of in our own solitude, looking out at the world as a perilous place. So we thought a really interesting angle of looking at our current situation would be thinking about those imagined perilous places and what that larger history could kind of talk to about our current experiences of it. Yeah, because as you say, you know, when we first were chatting about this, we were talking about, you know, hospital sick beds, perhaps, or different kinds of perilous places. But now the world outside the window has become one. I personally have started feeling quite anxious every time I go out. I'm sure a lot of people are feeling that way. What can that history feed into that experience? I think it's it's that larger experience of, of not being alone in this, that, you know, being an involuntary solitude has a really long history and specifically linked to health. So a part of that history is kind of showing us that we're not alone in this, even if we might be alone inside. And it's kind of a larger connectivity, weirdly, that we've all been anxious about looking outside, about being outside. But when you turn to poetry specifically, you can kind of see that everyone's felt it in each generation almost. And there seems to be quite a lot of policing of solitude going on at the moment. People feeling very worried about whether they're sort of doing self-isolation right. Should we be productive? Should we not be productive? I don't know if any of the poetry that you read or things you've been thinking about speak to that. Yeah, I think it's such an odd moment for people to kind of be turning around being like, oh, you finally have the time. You should be writing your monograph when actually your mind is full of other worries right now. But I think what's really interesting is that there is a larger history of solitude being linked to productivity. But specifically thinking about doing this episode on perilous places, I was more thinking about how that history could speak to almost a negative productivity. And that's where I think that larger history of the poetry can speak to solitude as a, as a space where your kind of biggest fears and 
deepest anxieties can get explored. There's such a long history, especially in the 18th century, of poets creating a new reality from their own solitude that's completely bleak and depressing to read. But it's also some of the most beautiful poetry. And there's that kind of tension between, you know, beautiful verse and and negative imagination. I love this idea that you talk about poetry to another world, but specifically sometimes another world that, as you say, doesn't have to be positive, because I think often when we talk about that, there's this idea of, oh, into another wonderful, magical world, but actually poetry is a way of imagining another reality that might be perilous, but that actually can help us think through the context we're in. I think that's a really lovely idea, actually. Are there any poets that you think do that really well? There's a group of poets that we now call the Graveyard Poets, who were writing in the mid-18th century. And there's this really weird dark turn in the middle of the 18th century where people really loved writing about darkened graveyards and, and their grief. But then kind of jumping forward a little bit, we have the 19th century. And Emily Dickinson is probably our key solitary poet, you know, locked away in her own room, but imagining all of these different vast expanses. And she was one of the poets that we kind of first turned to thinking about this podcast, was that she often turns to ideas of wilderness and vast expanses whilst locked away in her own room. I'm so glad you chose her because she's such a wonderful poem and actually just reading ahead of this podcast, her poem, The Wilderness, I was really quite moved and um, I wonder if you might read it for us. Yes, I came too late to the hills. They were swept bare winters before I was born of song and story, of spell or speech without power of oracle or invocation. The great ash long dead by a roofless house, its branches rotten, the voice of the crows an inarticulate cry, and from the wells and springs the holy water ebbed away. A child, I ran in the wind on a withered moor, crying out after those great presences who were not there, long lost in the forgetfulness of the forgotten. Only the archaic forms themselves could tell, in sacred speech of hoodie on grey stone or hawk in air, of Eden where the lonely rowan bends over the dark pool. Yet I have glimpsed the bright mountain behind the mountain. Knowledge under the leaves, tasted the bitter berries red. Drunk water cold and clear from an inexhaustible hidden fountain. It's such a beautiful poem, isn't it? I think we could all do with a glimpse of that bright mountain <laughs> in our imagination at the moment. Why did you pick this poem? I, th I mean, it has so many layers of creating an idea of wilderness and kind of that perilous place that we're thinking about. And also thinking about those, well, the wilderness being a, a reenactment of negative emotions. And I think she's really talking to that longer poetic history of writing about the wilderness. She feels, well, I assume she feels, abandoned in that wilderness herself. She came too late. She's not sharing it with any other poet. She's read their songs and stories. But now she's left there, swept bare. 
Yeah, that sense of belatedness comes across so strongly. And I love the sort of use of yet in the final sense of yet I have glimpsed the bright mountain. Um, because you said earlier, there's a sense of her seeing the whole world from her room and, and almost as if her seclusion has led her to be able to glimpse this long history and be a part of it, even if sometimes that feels quite melancholy or or lonely or whatever else. Um, yeah, really, I think it really does speak to this moment. And someone else who's been thinking about Emily Dickinson recently, who we wanted to include in this conversation, is Josh Cohen, who is a professor at Goldsmiths University in modern literary theory, who's also a psychoanalyst. And his book, Not Working, celebrates various sort of heroes of doing nothing. But one of my favourite chapters is on Emily Dickinson. It's called Daydreamer. So we're very excited to have Josh join us in this conversation now. First of all, love your book, Josh. Thank you. Really, I've been reading it this week. feels very timely. You divide your book up according to types of non-workers. So you've got burnout and slob, daydreamer. And one of your daydreaming heroes is the famously reclusive poet, Emily Dickinson. What drew you to her in the first place? I think I was drawn to her a long time ago. And I think in both the biography, but more so in the poetry, I found a kind of one of those moments that you get when you encounter certain figures of startling recognition of something in you, something it's not it's not a comfortable recognition in the sense that it doesn't mirror the person that you know you are, but gets you to discover something in yourself you weren't really aware of. And I think it's that combination of being reclusive, remote, dreamy, but at the same time plugged into the most visceral and elemental questions and truths. And I've always found that combination, that sort of, on the one hand, a kind of mild, almost meek sort of removal from the world. And at the same time, a kind of immersion in the viscera of of psychic life, the extremities of being inside a mind. I, I, I just find that absolutely magnetic. Me too. And I, I love this idea of a moment of recognition as well. I mean, you mentioned her biography and she is famously reclusive. Is that quite important, her solitariness to this imaginative travelling that she does this daydreaming into other worlds? I think so. The fact that she seems to dedicate so much of her life to winning this solitude for herself. There are so many other paths she can go down. And in fact, even when she stays in the house, the solitude of daydreaming composition isn't that easy to lay claim to because actually she has quite a heavy burden of domestic duty at various points in her life, including, you know, the burdensome task of keeping a kitchen clean for a family in, you know, the course of a 19th century domestic setup. But also at various points being a carer for her depressive and and rather ill mother. And so, you know, the various pressures on her from others, perhaps at different points from herself, 
to enter into conventional worldly life and, and in particular, of course, uh, marriage. There's a particularly lovely quotation from your book. You say that Dickinson is, and I quote, foregoing the boundless expanse of the world for the boundless confines of her room and head. So I wondered what kind of spaces do you see her exploring from this privacy and solitude of her bedroom? Yeah, I mean, the problem for women historically in resisting the imperatives of activity is that we make ourselves conspicuous when we do that. People accuse us of being lazy or of scrounging off others or of not pulling our weight, which is you know, historically a very difficult charge for a woman to be on the receiving end of. So daydreaming, on the other hand, you see, sort of confining yourself to the confines of your head, doing all the escaping there, is inconspicuous. It's a kind of invisible escape. It's an invisible resistance. But it turns out at the end of her life to be a real powerful one. But in terms of the spaces that she occupies, I mean, all kinds of very extravagant spaces, really. I mean, you know, given that this is someone who goes almost nowhere in the course of her life, she is the most widely travelled poet as well. She goes to the furthest expanses in her mind, to, to frozen tundras, to, you know, the, the, the lushest, most fecund oriental gardens, to seas and rivers. There is an intensely variegated and very rich sort of physical or visual landscape in her poems, sometimes extravagantly fertile, and sometimes the opposite, sometimes, you know, characterised by wilderness, by a kind of stripped back emptiness. Yes, I wanted to ask you actually about the wilderness, mm. the poem The Wilderness. What does the wilderness mean for Emily Dickinson? The wilderness is, I think, one of her paradoxical figures. Paradoxical because she finds richness and a kind of endless interior gifts in privation, in, in the empty and deprived landscape of the wilderness. In that poem, you have a landscape which intimates something terribly sort of rich and fecund, hills that were full of a kind of Edenic beauty, pools, leaves, um, berry bushes, cold, clear waters, inexhaustible fountains. And yet all of this, when she comes to the scene, when the poet comes to the scene, it's all been stripped away. And poetry then becomes about the intuition of all these riches that have been lost, that are concealed behind the stripped wintriness of this wilderness landscape. In a way, the wilderness is a figure for her own external life, which seems to any observing outsider incredibly, well, you know, most, most people, I think, conventionally would think of it as very impoverished, sitting in a locked room scratching away at a small desk, 
writing poems that she is going to circulate around, you know, a handful of readers. Some of them, not all of them. Many of them will go unread by any anyone but most of them will go unread by anyone but herself during her lifetime. She secretes them in a, a series of packets which she calls fascicles, and they're discovered by her sister posthumously. So in some ways, you know, you could see the landscape of richness that is concealed in in the past of this landscape of wilderness of impoverished wilderness you could see this as a as a kind of figure for the secreted richness of dickinson's imaginative life which no one had suspected everyone thought she was just this kind of poor old spinster locked up in her bedroom scratching away obscurely and you know open this chest and it turns out that you have the basis for perhaps the single most celebrated body of work in American poetry. So that was Josh Cohen from Goldsmiths University talking about his new book, Not Working. Um, Very resonant, I think, at this time. I'm here chatting with James Morland, who's one of the researchers on the Queen Mary Pathologies of Solitude project. We're doing a series of podcasts, and this particular one is on perilous places. Yeah, and I think it's such a fascinating book. And I think The thing that really jumped out at me when reading it was his quote about Dickinson saying that she was foregoing the boundless expanse of the world for the boundless confines of her room and head. I think that speaks to such a a larger history of people retreating into their own solitary rooms and imagining those boundless darkened expanses, which relates really specifically to my own research on 18th century graveyard poets. And there was a phrase relating to their poems written in the dark hours of the night, which I absolutely love. And someone once wrote that their poems smell of the candle. I think that's really emblematic of that negative creativity that we were talking about. That in these darkened spaces... Um, where these poets are in their own solitude. They're imagining even darker spaces, like graveyards. So you mean they're sort of going into their rooms, making it really dark, and thinking about graveyards? Mm-hmm. That's, that's the kind of... Was that, is that sort of a regular practice? Or is it, to kind of, is it linked to them creating poetry? Or? Yeah, it's, it's very much linked to, especially one of them creating poetry. So Edward Young, who wrote Night Thoughts, which is a gigantic poem that I wrote a big chapter of my PhD on for my sins, um, where <laughs> it's, it's glorious in some parts and horrible in the others. But Edward Young was known to draw his curtains in the middle of the day and write by candlelight to try and get himself into the right mindset of writing these kind of darkened night thoughts. Supposedly, he was also sent a skull which turned into a candle lamp um, just to set the scene even further. (laughs) (laughs) I love these details. Keep them coming. (laughs) Are the poems very dark in tone or, you know, is it sort of... Emily Dickinson's poem that we just heard was obviously very melancholy, but it has this sort of glimpse of Mm -hmm. hope in it. 
is is it just very dark in the in the graveyard poems of the 18th century it is for the most part very dark but there is always a sense of salvation in there somewhere and that's generally for the most part you know if you know 18th century you know mostly it's going to turn towards god at some point and that's where the light kind of comes into that darkness is ideas of salvation but i think at the heart of all of their writing is trying to recreate that darkened space of of nothingness they're really concerned with the idea of of nothing which is what this darkness kind of emulates so william cooper writes for solitude however some may rave seeming a sanctuary proves a grave and that's where those connections really come in with solitude that being solitary was seen on the one hand as being great for productivity but on the other it was seen as a really grave risk it could send you to your death and that's why they're so inherently interested in solitude i think because they want to connect more with those ideas of death how much are they thinking you said they're thinking about nothingness and creating nothingness how much is that linked specifically to is it their own death the death of others does grieving come into it yeah i think grieving is is really central to almost every single one of the poems the nothingness and the darkness of solitude really links to being left behind actually and they really speak to that connection of creativity coming from this idea of being left behind and alone and adam smith probably better known for his magnum opus the wealth of nations also wrote a big work on the theory of moral sentiments he has a really key quote about these ideas of of darkness solitude and grief where he says do not mourn in the darkness of solitude do not regulate your sorrow according to the indulgent sympathy of your intimate friends return as soon as possible to the daylight of the world and of society but for these graveyard poets specifically i think they they don't want to come to the light immediately they want to mourn in the darkness of solitude so they can really feel it um in order to have a closer connection to both the the lost um but also to the to the divine I'm so struck by that actually in all the examples you've given and in that Emily Dickinson poem even though that's sort of a later one I think this sort of idea of sitting in your feelings is probably quite resonant with a lot of listeners at the moment in the current situation you know I think there's so much kind of you know business as usual get on with it and actually sometimes you just need to sit with a feeling and okay maybe you don't need to go so far as to you know making it completely dark <laughs> and having a candle and being very gloomy although you know knock yourself yeah, out you but actually there's something about sitting in that in between it doesn't have to be positively productive or maybe even negatively productive but just sort of giving yourself that moment is something that really speaks to me right now anyway mm-hmm. yeah and i think it's it's that idea of for them that idea of of being alone and being quite separate but you know going back to to Thomas Gray who's writing about the death of his friend Richard West he's really grappling with this darkened solitude and and loneliness as separating himself from the kind of burgeoning spring where he's watching the spring happen but he can't feel it he doesn't feel like he's a part of that 
usual system of nature. And that configures with his process of grieving, where he kind of uses his poetry to create a space where he can speak to his friend Richard West again. So this is from On the Death of Richard West by Thomas Gray. In vain to me the smiling mornings shine, and reddening Phoebus lifts his golden fire. The birds in vain their amorous descant join, or cheerful fields resume their green attire. These ears, alas, for other notes repine, a different object do these eyes require. My lonely anguish melts no heart but mine, and in my breast the imperfect joys expire. Yet morning smiles the busy race to cheer, and newborn pleasure brings to happier men. The fields to all their wanted tribute bear, to warm their little loves the birds complain. I fruitless mourn to him that cannot hear, and weep the more because I weep in vain. Oh, it's so sad. <laughs> <laughs> Beautiful. So in terms of perilous places, the sort of grave and, and perhaps also the bedroom then <laughs> might be one of them. Um, if we think about these 18th century graveyard poets sort of recreating the darkness of the grave in their own rooms. But of course, another perilous place that we were bouncing ideas around for pre-COVID-19 happened was sick beds. And of course, a lot of people that experience prolonged periods of solitude in terms of perilous places it might be people suffering from an illness in their sick bed for example as a poetry feeding into that idea oh 100 percent, and it has such a kind of long rich history that's probably more apt today than it potentially ever has been since the bubonic plague um, where we've got john dunn's ideas of of sickness and his sick room poetry where he's you know very much like gray trapped in his room looking out at the world and writing quite despairingly about it and that's something we've spoken about a lot as a project within our team meetings and just generally as we do so a perfect person to talk about dunn's ideas of sick rooms would be barbara taylor our principal investigator yes indeed when I spoke to Barbara Taylor, I asked her whether it was right to say that John Donne described his sickbed as both a perilous and a solitary place. Yes, and perilous in the obvious sense that he's afraid he's going to die. He is very, very unwell. And the solitariness is one of the things that makes it perilous because the state of mind of someone inside this kind of absolute solitariness of a quarantined sick room. He describes it as a solitude which is not threatened in hell itself. So um, it's, this is a very extreme experience of aloneness. And um, one of the meditations, famous solace artist in the devotions, goes on to talk at some length about the ways in which this experience of absolute solitude leads him to think about the necessity of social life, not just for human beings, but in a sense the sociality of all of creation. One feels in this deep meditation um, 
that Dunn is struggling in a way to imagine the relationship between the body, the soul, the afterlife, and at what point one can feel confident uh, about one's place in the order of things and one's relationship to God. He says that even in heaven, there are orders of angels and armies of martyrs and so on. All is plural. How is it that he now, John Donne, is finding himself in this terrifying condition of solitude? And yeah, you've kind of talked there about the great scheme of things and and the human in relation to God. And I was going to ask actually about where Dunn sees God or if he sees him at all from a sickbed. Dunn is obviously a very religious man. When he's sort of describing his experience on the sickbed, is God, does he feel like God's close to him? Does he feel like God's far away? Is there kind of any insight into how kind of being in this solitary place has shaped his uh, relationship to God? Dunn has a famously checkered history He's the most startling man to have become the Dean of St. Paul's, having had a young life of famous sort of womanizing. I mean, some of the most exquisite poetry of, of the erotic and so on. And he is a man who suffers from guilt, depression, a sense of solitariness, of loneliness, as we would call it now, which predates this terrifying experience of 1623. He struggles all his life with questions about what he calls the defects of solitariness. And so these devotions are, in a way, a kind of conversation in many places with God. I mean, there is a kind of a a, a pleading um, with God, a turning toward God. I think a degree of uncertainty, perhaps, as to whether or not God is really with him in this terrible time. So I think that's one of the things that makes this text so deeply moving. He says, I am not able to pass this agony alone, not alone without thee, thou art thy spirit, not alone without thine, and so on. So um, as a testimony to the pains of a soul which may experience a degree of of detachment or abandonment by God is an extraordinary moving document. I think it's probably not surprising that Dunn managed to get some great writing out of this terrifying experience, which he sort of felt was hellish. Is there a sense in his writing that he recognised this was kind of a time of productivity as well as terror, or was it just purely a fearful time which some writing came out of? Is there any sense that he realised it was quite productive? I'm not sure whether I would say that he did experience himself as productive, but in retrospect, it leads him, it draws him toward one of the most famous assertions of the communality of humankind, of what we all share. I mean, that we are all part of one great humanity, in a sense, that we are never singular. We are always plural. And I think this is, this is a, an idea that Dunn has been reaching toward. Famously, he hears the bells outside his sick room, and he hears funeral bells that are tolling outside St. Paul's. 
and he thinks about these bells and whether or not you know one of these bells could be eventually a bell for him and that leads him into the very famous meditation no man is an island entire of itself every man is a piece of the continent a part of the main no man is an island entire of itself every man is a piece of the continent a part of the main if a clod be washed away by the sea europe is the less as well as if a promontory were as well as if a manner of thy friends or of thine own were any man's death diminishes me because i am involved in mankind and therefore never send to know for whom the bell tolls it tolls for thee and these words have come down to us as one of the great statements about the, the fellowship of of humanity that we are all involved with each other uh, it has it has deep classical and christian roots but possibly no one ever put it as eloquently as done and this does i think emerge from this very extreme psychological as well as physical condition that he found himself in during this period of dire illness do you think we're better equipped than say dunn was to deal with uh, solitariness in the 21st century do we have more tools to deal with that well first of all of course dunn was violently ill during this experience and we know that people have died alone in their homes and that is a truly terrible thing to think about they've died from this virus but if we pull back from that extreme and horrifying experience to people living alone during this pandemic one of the things that i think is very acute about the solitariness that people are experiencing right now is to do with uh, its complex relationship to care the psychoanalyst donald winnicott wrote in a famous essay called the capacity to be alone that a small infant acquires a capacity to be alone by internalizing the care of its mother or other caregiver becoming part of the psychic life of the child so that when it's alone paradoxically it's not alone i think that the carelessness of our government adds a certain quality to people's experience of solitariness which in a more caring situation people are receiving care from each other from volunteers from the health service i mean there's there's lots of care around but we need to feel that the people in charge of this situation really care about us and when that's missing i think that makes for a particularly troubling distressing form of solitariness i couldn't agree more i think caring is the key here absolutely thank you so much professor barbara taylor head of the pathologies of solitude project at queen mary university of london and thank you for listening to this podcast from the pathologies of solitude project generously supported by the welcome trust and hosted by Queen Mary University of London. It was presented by me, Hetta Howes, and produced by Natalie Steed. In the next episode, we'll be examining the city as a place of solitude. 
To hear the rest of the Places of Solitude series and discover more about our work, search for Solitude's Queen Mary. Mary.